Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. everybody to this emergency recording of the This Believe Land is Your Land podcast with uh, my erstwhile co-hosts Mike Krupka and John Colosimo. How you guys doing? Feeling fantastic right now. I mean uh, it's, it's a good day and there's a lot to talk about so uh, I mean just feeling good right now. Yeah man sunny vibes beautiful uh, beautiful skies out here in Hawaii and not just because uh, you know of the weather but because <laughs> On the horizon is nothing but Freddie Kitchens and Baker Mayfield. It's beautiful. So I was feeling kind of, I was feeling good about the day's news, but I was also feeling kind of junky because I got, you know, home renovations going on. I've got moving going on. And then John reminded me of what a good mood I'm in today. And then Mike <laughs> ruined it with that bullshit. We had sideways hail earlier today, like literally 45 degree angle hail beating up against the windows today. And you're, you're talking about sunny, sunny vibes. So. As yes. <laughs> go after yourself mike but um no today's a wonderful day for cleveland browns fans and and i appreciate that um it's not everybody that feels this way i thought that i was gonna jump on the internet today and see a whole bunch of fans just celebrating because for for those of you living under a rock the uh the browns have hired freddie kitchens as their head coach which in my little tiny curated uh part of the world in which i surround myself with very intelligent browns fans everybody seemed to be really hyped about it but uh, I, I guess from, from talking to you guys before the show started, it seems like that's not necessarily the case everywhere. Yeah, I would say, uh, just like you said, uh, if, in our little uh, Browns Twitter land, uh, all is good uh, for the most part. It's still not 100%, but it never will be. But you venture out into the wasteland that is Facebook Ugh. and get some uh, <laughs> get some friends and family involved get some kinds of that and and i've just met like massive resistance like what the like literally what the f are the browns <laughs> he's only been an oc for eight games how could they fire greg williams like all the worst takes and uh you know i've, I've like said a couple of comments but i've just been like surprised at the backlash there i'm like I just don't necessarily understand what you might have been watching these last two years uh, and these last eight games that would lead you to uh, lament letting Greg go and be upset that we kept our, you know, our most valuable coach. Yeah. I, for those of you that are blessed enough to only be using one social media platform, I really thought that people online were just, you know, people online. I thought that there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the folks that you run into on, on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. And then I became an administrator for an SB Nation Facebook page. And I realized that it is just a den of iniquity. It is awful. Like the kind of scum, <laughs> wretched hive of villainy has never been seen before anywhere, as, as you'll find in the Facebook comment section. Mike, what's, what's your experience been today? 
it would be interesting to correlate, you know, different, different places like, you know, SB nation and Facebook and Twitter with different States to see kind of who would be the armpit of America and who would be the <laughs> of America. Um, I'm, I'm one of those guys who was blessed enough to, to not be on Facebook, uh, for multiple reasons. So my world is only the Twitter world. And I was surprised this morning to, to hear things as, as, as an example, uh, you know, Greg Williams, losing Greg Williams is going to be the worst thing that ever happened to the Browns. I, I, I was floored, first of all. Like, so I, I don't understand that. I want, to jump in, I want to jump in on that note. Like, why – like, so Greg Williams is a de- defensive coach, right? And, and the defense this year at best, like, if you count the, the, the second most takeaways in the league as being something that, that's repeatable and something that he created – at best, this defense was mediocre. So, like, what is the – like, what are we losing? What's the massive cliff that we're about to fall off of by letting Greg Williams go? Like, are we going to be the 29th-ranked defense in the league and only get 15 turnovers next year? Is that like – I mean, it's just – right? Like, what are we losing? So, I mean, that was one of the things that I, I was scratching my head about this morning, Josh, exactly, is, you know, what, what is it that we're losing? I mean, yeah, I loved kind of his, his persona, but in terms of results, I wasn't overly impressed, and I, and I think he's a guy that can be replaced. Um, but in terms of the, the Freddie Kitchens fallout from that I saw, anyways, I was, again, completely floored. I, I don't understand, as, as John was saying, what these guys were watching. And the, the idea that the guy doesn't have enough experience is, is just wild. I mean, he's, he spent, I don't even know how many years in the NFL, but he's done some of the, his greatest work with Carson Palmer. We saw some of those things come out today on social media. Um, he's obviously done some fantastic things here in Cleveland. We've been talking about it on the podcast forever that he has a great relationship with Baker and that doesn't just come, you know, presumable to, to any head coach that comes in the door and uh, you can't expect your quarterback to fix that if a, if a shitty coach comes in the door. So I was just really surprised by the fault. I'm, I'm stoked by it. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, what, what about you, Josh? I want, I want to rewind a little bit. Um, I've been kind of snarky about Greg Williams being let go, and I don't want to be casual about it. I actually do really appreciate Greg Williams being here this year. Um, I expected Absolutely. a lot worse. I expected some, some at, at best, some really awful pressers and some really wacky off-the-wall stuff. But for the most part, when Greg Williams stepped into the head coaching job, like he was an adult. He stopped throwing people under the bus. He started saying the things you want to hear from a head coach. He was a good guy and he did a great job when there wasn't anybody else to do that job. And I'm really grateful that, that he was here. So I don't want to poo poo the right. man, Greg Williams. I don't want to poo poo the job he did this year. Um, I want to poo poo him as a defensive coordinator, which I've been doing loudly on all corners of the internet. Um, but I do, I do want to appreciate him being here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to make that distinction too. I mean, he, he is him as a head coach after Hugh was the, you know, a total change a uh, total breath of fresh air. What he was and represented as a head coach was great, but specifically as a defensive coordinator, that's where my comments were directed. So Yeah. So if we say, Greg Williams, you're a sucky piece of suck in, in more uh, direct language, then it's, it has nothing to do with how grateful we are for you being a head coach. It has everything to do with the tight end not ever being covered for three straight years on this team on third and long. <laughs> Among other things. But Among the, other yeah, the yeah. I mean, I would say the same thing. I I absolutely thank Greg for his service on this second half of the year. I think he did a, a better job as a head coach than he ever did as a defensive coordinator. Yeah, I wish him all the best, and I hope very much that he gets a defensive coordinator job inside this division. <laughs> I hope 
I, I wish nothing but the best for him. And by the best, I mean, I hope we get to play your defense twice a year because we'll chew it up because you're not very good at coaching. Defense. Baker will eat that lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so what if he joins forces with you again in Cincinnati, guys? Uh, you know, I'd rather Baker see him that. in Pittsburgh. Let's, let's, you know, let's get uh, spread it Cincinnati. out. Yep. Yeah, spread there we go. Spread the love. I already did that earlier today with uh, Amos Jones when um, I think it was Mary Kate, one of the Cleveland Beat reporters had reported that, oh, it was, uh, it was Lane Atkins actually, reported that uh, Amos Jones was looking to coach at least one more season. And I said, you know, I know just the staff that he can do this on. I actually know three staffs that he can do this on, but I know he has a deep personal relationship with somebody in Cincinnati, um, at least until they do something else hilarious. And I would love to see that dude land in our division. And I, I kind of feel the same way about Greg Williams. There's just, just not into it. And I'm, and I'm, uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm really pleased that he and the rest of the defensive staff is moving on. I love that they kept the DBs coach, and I love that they kept Adam Henry. Those were the two guys where if I had to choose, they'd be the guys I'd want to see them stick around. Um, but I, I was neither surprised nor super disappointed to see anybody else leaving. I think we fired everyone into the sun today that I <laughs> wanted to, including Bob Wiley, who I know made some wonderful uh, bits in the, uh, you know, the HBO series Hard Knocks this offseason, and he did a fantastic follow-up with the Christmas you know, that little bit that they did. Okay. Yeah, that was really fun. I'm not sad to see Wiley go. And I know like that that's one of those ones that like some people are like, you know, sad to see him go. And I'm just not. Yeah. And you know what, as much as I love Bob Wiley, and I think that a lot of Cleveland fans love Bob Wiley because Joe Thomas loves Bob Wiley and because he's, he had talked about how great he was from day one, but I don't know that in the year of our Lord, 2019, I am super into somebody who doesn't believe in stretching as a like science uh, being being part of my squad, like I I think that the team the the offensive linemen make Bob Wiley look better than Bob Wiley makes Bob Wiley. I think in the scheme of success for the Cleveland Browns for the offensive line, it goes like individual All Pro level talent at the guard positions and a really good year from the center. It goes Baker Mayfield getting the ball out quickly, Freddie Kitchens helping Baker Mayfield get the ball out quickly, a huge enormous uh, cliff. And then somewhere underneath that, Bob Wiley's coaching, bringing the, uh, the most out of that squad. I actually didn't even know he was let go. Can I just ask the question, who has Joe Thomas not given his full support to? Yeah. Ooh. That's, good. That's a good question. Uh, and, and, and more specifically, who has Joe Thomas not given his support to before they were let go? Like, it, preemptively. Who was like, you know, I know everybody loves this guy. I know everyone's big on the job Freddie Kitchens is doing, but I just want to say, like, this ain't yeah, it. The guys, right. yeah, this ain't it. The guy wears off those shoes. Um, it's, a, it's a good point, John. You don't, you don't ever see him kind of, you know, call out anybody or, or say anything negatively about anyone in the organization. He seems so endeared to it that uh, I don't know if that's in his nature to do that. And it's, it's interesting because he's such a great player and he does such a great job making commentary on games and those types of things. You'd like to see some of that honesty and, uh, or at least what I'd perceive as more honest feedback uh, from him in those. Uh, regards yeah I do think that um Hawkins his uh his his life mate on the Tomahawk show which is a great podcast for um the seven of our listeners uh, I hope that all seven of you are listening to that podcast too but um they, they get a little bit snarky about people but it's it's all people outside the organization that have left for a while correct correct so so, so people that are around he's still he's still very chill with very friendly with which is great like you want 
you're all pro to be out singing the praises of the people he's working with. You want to be friendly and congenial. You don't want him out there just savaging everybody on the way out. So, right. I'm just saying, uh, don't take his, uh, don't take his recommendations as something special because right. they're really not. I mean, you know, that that's not anything against Joe. Uh, Joe is an amazing player because Joe had that inside him. There was nobody that made Joe. All right. Joe showed up. He's a psycho about looking at, uh, you know, looking at film perfecting his technique and those things there's not a, a, an o-line coach certainly not at the browns maybe there was somebody in wisconsin that helped instill that to him but it certainly wasn't any o-line coach of the browns that made joe thomas who joe thomas was right right exactly yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more with that and you know um i really appreciate the the, the approach he takes to all this I, I appreciate that he was a professional and that he uh, got the most out of the, the linemen around him I just think that he's going to wear his Hugh Jackson love for a couple seasons. Like for a couple of years, people are going to remind him whenever he's got a, a take about something, they're going to come back and be like, Ooh, remember when you said that everyone was being mean to Hugh Jackson for no reason. And then Hugh Jackson left and the team got 500% better overnight. Like, uh, yeah, you, you, you're going to wear that. So speaking of wearing stuff, what, uh, what dumb predictions do we have for uh, who's going to become assistant coaches and whatnot in the next couple of weeks? <laughs> I, I do like that. Most everybody has just kind of, raised an eyebrow and shrugged shoulders and said, I have no idea where this is going because to be completely honest, we are in completely uncharted territory here. I love that in the era of find your offensive genius and pair him with an adult on the defensive side of the ball, the, uh, the McVay method. Um, the Browns are at the front of the charge. They're at the, uh, you know, the, the crest of the wave to put it in Krupka speed. Um, and I appreciate that rather than trying to do what everybody else is doing five years behind, it's what Cleveland's been doing. It was what they tried to do with Hugh what they tried to do with Haley. They tried to bring in uh, the best and the brightest offensive minds. They just never had the capital, both in organizational structure or um, quarterbacking talent to be able to, to lure anybody good. And that's why today the hiring kitchens was such a great move. It was such a, such a breath of fresh air because it was the first time that you saw the team identify that that's how you, you build squads today. They said, we already have nine games worth of film that says this guy is the goods. This guy, um, knows what he's doing. And I know that, that you can go back and listen to the pods from a couple of weeks ago when, when Kitchens took over the job and we were, um, we were kind of in a wait and see mode. We were skeptical. We loved what we were saying, but we weren't sure how much of it was just coaching competency over brilliance. Um, so when he really, really turned it on, when he got better year, game by game, that's when that crescendo started to build for keeping him. So, so we're kind of in, in uncharted territory as far as assistants go right now. I, I'm desperate, and I'm sure this is the thousandth time you've heard this on the airways, but I'm desperate for him to find a defensive coordinator who can literally just take the office plate, um, whether that's a, a Todd Bowles type, whether that is a uh, Chris Richard type. Um, I would love to get somebody who has been coaching for a while and um, can just completely manage that without help or direction. Yeah, let me offer a couple of thoughts on this. Like, uh, And I don't know if this will end up a hot take over time, but – uh, I actually dig that Bruce Arians got the gig over in Tampa Bay because he may soak up a whole lot of the buddies in the buddy system. Oh, so you and don't want the buddies to come to Cleveland? No, I don't. No, I don't. Uh, I, I find a little bit of comfort in the fact that maybe they'll have to come back to the brain trust and finding the best and brightest instead of who is my buddy. I'm not a big fan of kind of the big circle jerk, like I'm going to take everybody right. who is around me type strategy yep. so i think that's i mean it may not work out but like to me uh 
I think it's a good opportunity to bring in new blood, to bring in different ideas, uh, those types of things, which could really benefit us in the long term. Yeah, John, I love that you said that because that's the number one reason when I started to really dig in that the idea of bringing in McCarthy kind of rubbed me the wrong way in that, you know, again, that buddy system where, you know, you've got Wolf and Dorsey who have their roots there. And I, I was worried that that might be the, the outcome um, of a McCarthy hire, not just that, but also the antiquated offense that, that he kind of runs. So it's, it's cool that you, that you mentioned that. And I, and I too, um, I'm glad to see some of those buddies go down to, to Tampa with Arians. Um, it's going to be interesting to see who he brings in. I, I definitely like the idea of Chris Richard. We're just going to have to wait to see what happens in the playoffs. Uh, but he's a guy that's caught my attention after numerous of our uh, mutual uh, followers have, have tweeted out information about him. He's, he's caught my eye. Um, I think the one thing moving forward that benefits not just the coaching search, but also just the organization and this is tangential, but is the other news that came out today about the organizational structure and how our head coach is now reporting directly to Dorsey. And they talked about the committee of people involved in the search and how it wasn't just a one man crew. And I think those types of things we have been uh, lamenting for, for years that the way the Browns inner workings have been set up kind of led a lot of people to, to say things similar to what Jeff Schwartz said the other day and that, you know, we're, we, we're, not, we're not getting the candidate that we really want because of some other reason. And a lot of us assumed over time that that other reason had always been because of Haslam or mm -hmm. the organizational structure. And so now we're kind of removing that obstacle from the equation. And when I was looking at it and looking at Jeff's take, I, I was thinking to myself, like, really, what, what else is there? Like, you have Manz or sorry, Manziel. You've got Mayfield, you've got, you <laughs> oh, got no. money. No. I was thinking, I was Did thinking really of do that. I was thinking of money. So I was thinking of you've got money, you've got Mayfield, you've got all the draft picks, you've got all these different things in place. What what really could be a detractor for a head coach that wanted to come in? And the only thing I could think of is that organizational structure. And now you see that change today. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to see where this goes. And we're kind of all in this, uh, I don't know, we're on a boat with all this fog in front of us. We have no idea what's about to happen. I'll tell you what, like if I can offer my thoughts on this, like some of the things that I thought might happen, especially when you bring in an executive group uh, like Elliot Wolf and Alonzo Highsmith, uh, along with a John Dorsey, is I thought that possibly the path there was to uh, eventually maybe promote John Dorsey to like a president type role. Yeah, I and saw that you coming have, too. You know, and then you have, uh, you know, one of those two move into the GM role. And uh, I thought that was a pretty good path. I don't know if that's what they're thinking. Uh, you know, I'll go like the, the Dilbert route on this, first of all, uh, which is anything that removes Jimmy Haslam from the productive workflow sounds pretty damn good to me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to agree with that just out of hand. Uh, but, and I don't know long-term if that's what their plan is, but uh, I don't mind, like some people have even like people I respect even have said like they don't necessarily agree with that GM to uh, coach um, relationship because they have conflicting goals, which I understand. That's actually a decent point. You know, one's long-term one needs to win right away. Those types of things. I can understand like wanting a good mediator, but that mediator should not be Jimmy Haslam. I, I do know this, that regardless of how that relationship should be structured or work out, that having two separate people reporting to Haslam 
in, in history has been bad. Um, and it's weird that he hasn't picked up on why that is, but it's been bad because it inevitably leads to um, them jockeying for position from day one. And that's what we've seen completely like since, since the guy came on board. So, so for most of us, and I think the reason that Mike's celebrating it's the same as, as you and I is um, that it'll be a clear chain of command. It'll be a clear line that, that Dorsey uh, vouched for Kitchens when it's clear that a lot of his lieutenants um, were very interested in, in making the Mike McCarthy thing work. Um, and as such, I think that Haslam probably said, okay, like if you're putting your name on the line for this dude, then he's going to be reporting to you. He's going to, he's, you're going to tie, I'm going to tie your fates together. And just for once, regardless of who the HMFIC is, it's nice to have somebody reporting to somebody else below Haslam. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And I love how, how easily the uh, HMI, whatever that is, flowed off your tongue. I can't even say that acronym. That's a, that was amazing. I just want to point yeah, I just want to point that out, Josh. There, there are a couple of military acronyms that just kind of uh, remain like a reflex when we're talking about this kind of thing. But Yeah, um, no, the military is entirely acronyms. So Josh and I are very well versed in being able to rattle those off because, uh, you know, if there's anything that military members know about, it's acronyms and spec books. <laughs> we also know a lot about swearing, which um, I, I actually got in an argument with my wife the other day about because um, – when our son dropped his first uh, four-letter word, um, we, we got in an argument about who should be the person to teach him how to swear appropriately and properly. <laughs> He's like, I'm very good at this. And I was like, you may have like a bachelor's degree in this, but you know, military guys have PhDs. Like this is inventive and creative and, um, you know, stuff that most people have never even heard before. Like we'll, we'll, we'll get into the esoteric uh, nature of swears. But um, <laughs> I dust a couple of them off today too when uh, – when the, the the alert rolled through my phone that, that Freddie Kitchens was saying on guys, I'm just so incredibly excited uh, to see what comes next. There's obviously a, a, an enormous amount of risk that comes from hiring somebody who's young, who's, who's never had uh, the keys to the kingdom before. But what we know from all of the stuff we've seen today and what we've known from, from years is that uh, Kitchens, a man of, of principles that he's going to stick to him. Um, even regardless of his position uh, and that he's a good guy. And that's what I took from the, the stuff with Carson Palmer that you were referencing earlier is that he's just a good human being that people who have worked for him and around him uh, love his character. And it harkens back to what Dorsey was saying that that's who he's going to look for. He's going to look for innovators who are men of character and we had neither. And now you at least have the chance to have both. And every single time this has worked historically going back, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, Burns talked about it earlier, is when you were able to pair a long-term fit of a, of a, a good coach, a good innovative coach um, to a quarterback. So, so they're, they're getting it on the ground floor with guys who they know already work in this scene. For the people that doubt it, like what Kitchens did on offense, it doesn't matter if you're an analytics guy. It doesn't matter if you're a see-it-with-your-eyes guy. It doesn't matter what, like uh, – like he came in midseason, he can't change the offense entirely. They can't change the language. They can't change the entire offense. Uh, what he did, like there were certain uh, wonderful, uh, you know, statistics that came out today, like uh, yards per play. We were the number two since the greatest show on turf in 2000. All right, you know, PFF had us, you know, in their system as number two behind the Kansas City uh, Chiefs. DVOA 
had us number two behind the Kansas City Chiefs. What, what Freddie achieved over his eight weeks is not in question. It's fantastic. It's special. It's real. And you have guys like Jake Burns uh, breaking it down into why it's not gimmicky. Like, you know, so we have like all the evidence to say that we're 100% sure that what Freddie is doing on offense is not gimmicky. It's real. And so, you know, those were the kind of things that maybe gave us pause and, uh, and had us saying, oh, let's wait and see in the first couple of weeks. But he's answered all those questions. So now it's really about what makes a really good head coach. The, you know, the, uh, the NFL head coach graveyard is littered with fantastic coordinators, right? <laughs> That's not the same skill set. So... Whether or not Freddie succeeds as a head coach is going to be based on a lot of things that we don't necessarily see on a daily basis. The Browns do. Uh, they had the chance to interview a ton of players, or I mean, a, a ton of candidates who may have, you know, uh, wowed them with uh, schemes or, or whatever the case, but only the Browns know who the person Freddie is. We get little glimpses, but only the Browns know really who that guy is. And what's going to make or break him is going to be how much of a leader he is because we already know he's a legitimate offensive coordinator. We know that part. Is he going to be a uh, head coach type guy who, who lasts long-term? Uh, those are a lot of things that we really can't see from our seats. Um, I want to call back to, to what you were saying uh, a couple of minutes ago about the gimmickiness and the flash of – uh, Freddie Kitchens, because you see that a lot already being played out. Like, oh, I hope that there's some more substance to this offense because a lot of it was really unique play designs, big plays drawn off of tricky play action. Um, you know, the the wide receiver passes, the uh, wishbone formation. This is this was a lot of there was a lot of gimmickiness, and people are latching onto that and hoping that there's more substance to this. But uh, the 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 big detractor that people like to use here is, well, let's see this defense, let's see this offense perform against a uh, a really good defense that, oh, the Browns played a bunch of really trashy defenses in Cincinnati twice and Atlanta and yada, yada, yada. I think that week 17 put all of those ghosts to bed, at least as far as I'm concerned. When the Browns this year played good defenses with Freddie Kitchens at the helm, they designed plays that got guys open. In the Denver game, guys were wide open. Baker was just a little bit off. In the uh, Houston game, Baker rung it up in the second half, but the, the throws that he was making bad decisions on and throwing picks on in the first half, they were open plays. Like they were designs that were very, uh, that were, that were very elegantly put together and got guys open in space so that he could do something about it. And against the Ravens who were kind of definitively the number one defense in the league, Baker carved that ass up in week 17 and say what you want about the picks, like ball bounces didn't go his way. He threw for over 350 yards and three touchdowns against the best defense in the league. That's something that some of the elite quarterbacks in the league this year haven't been able to do. This is something that guys who have a much better pedigree than Baker Mayfield. Uh, hey, we just saw a little bit of that in Phillip Rivers last week. Exactly. We saw Phillip Rivers really struggle. And some of that was weather. Some of that was wind. Some of that was um, them really taking away the strengths of what San Diego does well. But also San Diego had the tape of how Cleveland hung all those yards on Baltimore, and they tried to replicate it and couldn't. And Freddie Kitchen and Baker Mayfield, who was the most productive rookie quarterback in history, were able to do that over the course of eight weeks. There's nothing to not feel great about. And I think that 
I've got some words for people who are going to complain about the, the gimmicky nature of it or think that Greg Williams had anything to do with the success of the offense had this year. I don't have anything nearly as uh, animated to, to add, but when I did take a look and I was prepping for my, uh, my film session with, with Jake um, earlier film in session. the year, and I, yeah, and I, I went back and I, what, what caught my eye is I noticed, and I talked about it with Jake, and, and, you, and Jake points it out way better than I do, but I noticed a number of plays where the exact same formation, the exact same players, the exact same things were dialed up with, with different play calls, right? So obviously trying to, to take advantage of what the defense thinks they're going to get and deliver something totally different. Um, and you see that multiple times. You see that not just throwing it, but then you see him switching it up to do a run. You see the play action get involved. And you see, again, the, the best quarterback that we've seen as a rookie be able to carve that up. And that's what gives me the most hope as we look forward is he, he did that. And he did it against teams that he's played multiple times. He did it against teams that have – Really good, uh, really good defenses. You know, he was able to do that down the stretch, uh, both Kitchens and, and Mayfield. So again, I'm I'm super excited to see what you know what's at stake here in the future. I don't think it's gimmicky. I think this is the real deal, and I think we can kind of buckle in for uh, for, for the ride because I think we are going to be one of the, the the most powerful offenses that I guess at least in in our division and certainly uh, in in the AFC. What rookie quarterback have you ever seen? In the history of your NFL watching careers, both of you guys, uh, that has been as good as Baker Mayfield. Let me, let me answer that question definitively. Two years ago, Carson Wentz came on the scene, and people loved his rookie season. People raved about his talent. People raved about what he was going to become, who he was. Carson Wentz threw 14 interceptions, fumbled the ball 14 times, and threw 14 touchdowns. He ran an offense that was largely throws within five to seven yards and downfield shots when the defense got caught creeping. People raved about that rookie season. Peyton Manning, 26 and 26. If I'm not remembering that correctly. 26 picks. Russell Wilson, as a rookie, was throwing the ball under 20 times a game in those first couple games. He was being asked to hand the ball off and throw off a play action with his great uh, downfield passing game. Nobody ever ever is asked to do what Peyton or what uh, Baker Mayfield was asked to do this year and not only was is nobody asked to do that but he executed it at a level that last eight weeks that put him up in numerically the likes of Drew Brees Pat Mahomes you know some of the best in the league so so if we went into year two with people legitimately talking about Carson Wentz as an MVP candidate if people are talking about Russell Wilson and Carson Wentz's rookie seasons as being revelations. And we haven't seen anything close to what we just saw out of Baker Mayfield. And I feel like in the hubbub of the playoff chase and the big games and all this stuff going on, it kind of got lost. Like we aren't talking enough about how just incredibly wild and unusual Baker Mayfield's rookie season was. Yeah. And unfortunately it's because the media is focused on the wrong things. And, you know, in the Browns world, we're focused on the, the nuances of this play and not the fact that, you know, he plays with passion or he has a chip on his shoulder or yeah. stared down his ex quarterback or, or head coach. It's like, those things are silly because what, what I, the things that really pump me up, man, is when down the stretch, you saw him just dissect defenses before the snap, 
he knew exactly what he wanted to do with the ball. He was calling audibles. He was changing, he was changing, you know, protections. He was doing all that stuff at, at an elite level, at an MVP level for a rookie. And that's mm-hmm. the stuff right there that, that gets me excited when you talk about the, the marriage of Freddie Kitchen's play calling with, you know, all the different things that he does to fool defenses and with Baker's just capacity to, to read defenses and carve them up and put the ball on the spot. It's, again, we are, we are seeing not even arguably in my lifetime the, the best rookie quarterback that I've ever watched play the game. Yeah, and, and to tie it back together to, to the Freddie hire, Freddie Kitchens is, is just as much a part of that as Baker's I-8 talent is. You watch the change in, in how yep. he was calling games. And, you know, again, the, the, what, what Bernsey was talking about on the podcast earlier, Freddie got Baker's eyes right. He got him knowing where to look. He got him moving through progressions quickly, and he got him an outlet. So if it wasn't a quick pass, you know, after he hiked the ball, if it wasn't the first read, he knew immediately where to go in that second, third, fourth read. It was an easy scan, and you watch that level of comfort. Um, and, and when you see how little pressure he's under because he's getting through his progression so quickly because the plays are developing so naturally, um, you got to give Kitchens credit for on the fly with the same playbook that Todd Haley put together, being able to put together an offense that, that would play to those kind of strengths. And, and I'm going to give Kitchens all the credit that he's due for that. And that, especially down the stretch of the last three, four games of the season, is why the, the people that I trust and, and love on Twitter were so big on the hire and were so big on, on Kitchens sticking around. Yeah, I will uh, just make one more quick point, is that uh, the insane numbers that we had on QB hits and QB hurries and QB sacks over the last eight games – was essentially 100% Freddie, all right? Mm-hmm. You had the exact same players. Yes, he put Greg Robinson out there, but don't sit there and freaking tell me that, oh, yeah, Freddie came in, stuck Greg Robinson out there, and that's the reason why we have those numbers, all right? That, that isn't it. Like, <laughs> he right. changed the schemes, okay? Like, he changed the way those tackles had to block, changed how long they had to block uh, by the way he did his scheme. And that, and that scheme difference made the Browns go from looking like one of these kind of modern offenses that stuck with, you know, 20th century principles like, the, like Green Bay has, where just everything seems like it's difficult, everything seems like it's a struggle, and the quarterback is running around for dear life trying to make something happen every play to, you know, in a lot of ways, stuff like we saw with the Houston Oilers back in the day with Warren Moon, where they were having fun and the ball was coming out quickly and they were just lighting it up. It was – it looked like a completely different team. It looked like you could have spliced the team, you could have spliced the season in half and recorded it and, and shown it to somebody and they would have said, this is, this is different years. But these you are could. different seasons. These are different, uh, you know, levels of development. One more thing. Like, have you ever seen the Browns run screens like this? Oops. Successfully? We commented on that on this podcast the first time, the, fir- the very first one. <laughs> we were like, what the heck is this? It's crazy. <laughs> it didn't go for negative yards or a fumble. I love that on some level, John's doing the like Chris Farley skit from Saturday Night Live right now. The like, remember that one time that you played the garden? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> remember that time Baker and play action? That was awesome. And I, I like, I'm doing the same thing. I love it. Like, it, it, it's, it's not going to be an offseason that feels as long as it has historically because. We're going to spend the next couple months not only getting ready and looking at draft-eligible guys and free agency and, and assistant coaching hires, which will take up the next couple of weeks, but 
Um, we're going to relive some of these moments. We're going to really look back on the season and have a good time enjoying what happened. This is by far and away the most enjoyment Browns fans have had in a really, really long time, especially when you think about how concentrated the success was towards the end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're seeing us start to rewrite the history books in terms of Brown's legend. You know, what's legend and lore? You look at the, the you know, the, the high five, you look at the, the old stuff from, you know, just the 80s Browns teams and you look at so much of the, the historic memories that we still hang on to as like, these were the best days ever. And <laughs> now we're rewriting that and it's exciting to see because everything's new. Everything's a new, you know, do you remember that? It's going to be fun. <laughs> And you know what? Yeah. And this is the last thing that I have to say about all this. This is the time to do it. We've talked for a couple of years about how, like, there's a changing the guard in the league. And all of these elite quarterbacks who have set records, who are going to go in the Hall of Fame, guys like Breeze, guys like Rivers, guys like Big Ben, Brady. Um, those guys are old as hell. Those guys are all getting out of the league in the next couple of years, maybe two, three years max. So getting, getting your team right, getting a good coach, getting a franchise quarterback, has never been as important as it is right now. And I'm watching the rest of the division, with the exception of Baltimore, on the way down. And I'm watching Cleveland move into the space now when it matters and when it's going to be really fun. Good read. So uh, there's, there's a lot of content coming the next couple of weeks. Um, obviously, like I just said, um, we've got the rest of the coaching staff coming on board. We're going to talk a lot about the schemes and the marriage of those schemes to Freddie Kitchens, um, how things are going to change next year based on the kind of defensive talent they bring in, what it's going to mean for, you know, down linemen, you know, up linebackers, what the draft needs are going to be based on the, the new people who come in, especially on the defensive side of the ball, where I think we, we, we can all agree we need to uh, really still keep continue bringing in uh, big bodies and, and, you know, talented blue chip bodies. Um, we'll have free agency right behind that in March. And then we'll, uh, we'll have the draft right behind us. So, so the next couple of months are going to be really fun for us. Um, and it's good to have this like overwhelming sense of optimism going into the off season. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Josh. And, and, you know, usually this time of the year, we're already knee deep in, in draft stuff and talking about all the sorts of stuff. And I think John, you pointed this out the other day, like this is the first year where I don't have draft fatigue already in January. Uh, <laughs> so it's exciting. It's exciting time to be a Browns fan. Like you said, Josh, you couldn't have said it any better. I mean, given the juxtaposition of where the teams in the division are headed, this is just uncharted territory. And it's going to be fun watching Kitchens assemble his staff. And, um, yeah, it's just – this is a really exciting time. So, without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll bid you a, uh, a great evening and have a wonderful weekend. And look forward to, to seeing you guys on the flip side next week as we talk about some of the assistants that are coming through. I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Karis Fisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there. Oh, 
Hello, I'm Nilay Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. (laughs) Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.